Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we'll give a brief look at some of the things that we talked about in other locations and other uh, broadcasts and other uh, online courses that we offer. We did a course this last week, and uh, uh, we talked about the Hasmonean whoredom. And uh, since then, I've uh, looked at uh, an individual, uh, Nehemiah Gordon, who is a... Uh, uh, Hebrew scholar, and uh, he often goes around and speaks in Christian churches, and he's a wealth of information. He has a pretty good attitude. I was listening to a lot of the things that he was talking about in different videos that he has up on the internet, and comparing some of his perceptions concerning the Hebrew language with my own. And one of the last things I heard just actually minutes before the, this program began was that he was talking about talking to a Christian crowd about the Jews, about uh, Israel, the people Israel, and how they were to be blessed forever. And he talked about the Old Testament God. Some people think of the Old Testament God as a God of vengeance. He doesn't see that. And he's showing in the Hebrew language how the Old Testament God was a God of forgiveness and a God of love and a God of caring and uh, how he was extending grace to the people of Israel. And this would be forever as long as there were stars in the heavens, so to speak. And that's absolutely true. I agree with all of that that he said. And I may even agree, he may even agree now with me with what I'm about to say, which is asking the question, who are the people of Israel? Because if you go to the Hebrew language, and I'm sure he would agree that the word Israel has to do at least, and he he's one who looks at letters and the the meaning of letters, but he also has a great deal of particular information about the Hebrew language because he actually reads and speaks and even probably thinks in the Hebrew language. He's been doing it since he was a small boy. But the question is, who is Israel? Is What is Israel? Israel is the place where God prevails. It isn't a geographical location. It isn't a bloodline. It is a place where God prevails. And that place has to be within us. And both Old and New Testament talk about God writing upon our hearts and upon our minds. So, does God prevail in your heart and your mind? And so, anyway, we we did a course on the Hasmonean Whoredom, and it was kind of a pivotal point in our study of the Free Church Report. How was the early the early church organized? How was it uh, operating? What was it doing? Did it look anything like the Presbyterians, the the uh, Baptists, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Jehovah Witnesses? Uh, were they essentially doing the same thing, thinking the same way? Because repentance is thinking another way. It's, it's about thinking another way. So, if we're not thinking the way of the very early church, out of the box, Pentecost, early church, then we are probably not really Christians. (laughs) We're not really followers of Christ. We have to assume these apostles who studied under Jesus Christ 
were appointed by Jesus Christ were actually teaching the people what to do. And when they got the baptism of these apostles, we talk about the baptism of Jesus Christ, and it actually tells us that Jesus Christ never baptized anybody. Except he did actually wash the feet of the apostles. And he did that as an example. And so that's a sort of baptism. Because that's what baptism is, is washing. And uh, so that he was washing those feet of the apostles. And I, I believe that that was a highly spiritual event. Just like when he came out of the tomb and he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, the same as the baptism of fire. We have an article up on that. It's not detailed too much, but it points out that distinction that how John the Baptist says, I only baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so what was he talking about? We see tongues of fire over the apostles at Pentecost and they come out cowards before, but now boldly preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the very men who crucified Christ. And so something is taking place there, and I would say, at least in their hearts and their minds, in order to allow this baptism of fire, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. You don't want to just be all wet with the baptism of water. And the baptism of water is is a statement. It was a statement at Sinai. There was a Judaic baptism. Herod was baptizing people. But John the Baptist was baptizing people. And really the only significance that is spelled out in the Bible that we really see uh, between what was going on in most of Judea and amongst most Jews and most Israelites, if you want to call them Israelites, uh, was, and, and what John the Baptist was doing, was that he said that, you know, if there's a need in your society, somebody doesn't have a coat, somebody doesn't have a house, somebody doesn't have a shelter, somebody doesn't have enough to eat, there's a need, there's a social welfare need in your society. You resolve that need with sharing, with charity, with free will offerings. All these words, I use free will offerings because that's what they used in the Old Testament. You don't see the word charity. You only see that in the New Testament. You see this word charity. And that word charity in the New Testament is the same word that you see Jesus using all the time when he says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Love this, love that. Uh, no greater love. You know, it's, it's the word that we see translated into charity also. When Paul says it, it's most often translated into charity. And of course, that's what John the Baptist is talking about. He's talking about you taking your coat, your house, your extra food, because he says, do the same in meats. And sharing with those in your society that have a shortage, have an inadequacy. Somehow, for some reason or other, they don't have enough. And they need help. And you're supposed to do that. Now, when you get your baptism of water, that's what you're supposed to start doing. And we know that, you're, that the antithesis of that would be to go to men who are going to take away from your neighbor what they have. So that you can have enough. 
That would be the antithesis of what John the Baptist was teaching. Certainly the antithesis of what Jesus Christ was teaching. Because Jesus Christ said you were not to be like other governments. When he's appointing the kingdom, a form of government to the apostles, he's saying you're not to be like the other governments, the other, you know, the princes of the Gentiles. That's the governors and the presidents and prime ministers, you know, and the uh, uh, what have you. You know, like Trudeau in Canada and and Trump in the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I can't think of all the other. Uh, uh, Jung in uh, North Korea. <laughs> You're not supposed to go to them for your social welfare. You're supposed to be taking care of one another. You're not to be like them who depend on men who call themselves benefactors, but really just exercise authority by taking away from your neighbor. That's a straight out instruction out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, and yet there seems to be a cognitive disconnect in Christians that it's okay to go to men who exercise authority, to live, to receive benefits at the expense of your neighbor. They think that's okay. Yet, right out of the mouth of Christ, right out of the actions of the early Christians, right out of the teachings of John the Baptist, we're not supposed to be doing that. But we are. Yet we call ourselves Christians. Jews are doing that. And they call themselves Jews. Moses wasn't doing that. Moses was supporting the needy of their society through free will offerings that were managed through a group that he called out of the Golden Calf camp. And the Golden Calf was a central bank. They, They took their gold and they put it into this Golden Calf. And it wasn't complete economic slavery, but at least as far as gold is concerned, it certainly was. These people were traveling, and I'm sure most of their wealth was in the form of gold, portable wealth. I mean, they had sheep, they had cattle, but those things could die. But gold, I mean, that's just, that's pretty permanent. Now, they probably had some silver, too. But if you you're, if you were really wealthy, you had your wealth in gold, because gold was always worth, you know, 20 times what an ounce of silver was to most societies around all the other Greek city-states, all the other city-states, they all valued that gold. Uh, even even the Spartans who made ownership of gold illegal and their money was made out of lead because they didn't want you to have any valuable money in your pocket whatsoever because they were, they were a very Nazi-type, uh, oppressive Uh, people always think, you know, the Spartans were for freedom. Well, they were for freedom for Spartans, but most of the people who lived in Sparta were in abject slavery. (laughs) They, they were the citizen slaves who had to work and support the government of Sparta. Uh, so they weren't really about freedom except for themselves. So that's, uh, they were actually very oppressive. I mean, to the point of slitting your throat oppressive. Killing you, throwing you into, uh, uh, you know, canyons and destroying you if you didn't, you know, tow the Spartan party line. They were courageous fighters and they were very organized fighters, but they were, they were not for freedom for everybody. They were freedom for themselves. Israel, on the other hand, was supposed to be a priest to all nations. They weren't a select group of people that would be saved and everybody else in the world condemned. They were actually there, chosen to be a priest to all nations, to show all nations 
how God wants you to do it. And God wants you to take care of one another through free will offerings. Through individual free will offerings that you choose to make. Now, it's actually, you could all just go out and take care of one another. You wouldn't need a called out group like the Levites. You wouldn't need a called out group like the Apostles. You wouldn't need a church. That's what church means. It's uh, The word church comes from the word we see translated uh, into church is the word Greek word ekklesia. And when they talk about the church in the wilderness, that's the Levites. When they talk about the early church, that's the apostles who were called out. And then they had, and there was 120. That's probably the church too. But all the people at Pentecost, they weren't, weren't really the church. They were the congregations of the people who got baptized and started taking care of one another because they were all cast out of the system set up by Herod. Anybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ would be cast out of that system. We we know that. It's telling you that concerning the blind man. So that's the basic groundwork of Christianity. This this is what fundamentally... If, if Jesus is the denominator of Christians... So your denomination is determined by Jesus. Then you, of course, would now not be praying to men who exercise authority one over the other for your daily bread. You would be praying to the Father and hope that the Father writes upon the hearts and minds of other people in your society that is seeking Christ and seeking to follow Jesus for your daily bread, for any kind of social welfare or need, or you know, if if you know you fell on hard times, it would not be coming from the men who exercise authority. It would be coming from other Christians through free will offerings, or even from other Jews. But it has to be through free will offerings. And if you were gathering around the called out, the church. These people that were not to be of the world, they were to be separate. But they were to be, you know, foot washers and servants of the people. Because Christ came to serve, so they have to be coming together to be the church to serve. This would be the church services. <laughs> if you if you had a need, if you ran short of food and you went to church and you said, you know, I'm out of food, I can go get welfare from the government, or you guys could help me. The the church would provide you with bread. And we know that right away in the first and second century, this is this was the distinction written down by Justin the Martyr in his apology to the Emperor of Rome, saying, "This is how we do it. We gather once a week, and those that have share with those that don't have enough." And why is he telling that to the emperor? Because the emperor wants them to sign up for the government welfare, which was public religion. Because religion was how you took care of the needy in your society. It wasn't what you think about God. It was, so we just covered the distinction between Christians and everybody else who later on, around the fourth century, would be called pagans. And we've just put up a page on paganism. And we could, we could go to that page now and we could go through that so you can understand what paganism. People think pagan, paganism is, you know, um, Moloch. You know, the, the god Moloch and, uh, and, uh, some, you know, these, these false religions, these pagan religions where Moloch was, you know, this, um, god who required the sacrifice of children. And so they would sacrifice 
children, you know, there, actually there were a number of different. There were other gods, uh, Saturn. There's a couple other gods that were kind of reflections of Moloch. But uh, Moloch, uh, at least at one point, certainly in Carthage, they had uh, a uh, Moloch who was uh, uh, where you had this big statue, this hollow statue, and you had this fire down below. So this, uh, the statue was very hot because of this fire. It was bronze statue. And they would actually take infants and they would lay the infant in the hands of Moloch when it was extremely hot. And of course, the infant would cry out and scream and fall down between the hands eventually, uh, being burned and what have you. And when it fall down in there, it would burn up in the fire that was going on down below. Now they, in Carthage, they supposedly excavated a place where that, cause they were Canaanites in Carthage. And they uh, excavated and they found the remains of like 30,000 victims of Moloch, most of whom were boy children. And uh, there were girl children down there too. And I, I kind of wondered why that was because it was specifically supposed to be boy children. But I could imagine that some people actually dressed their girl children up. And it sounds horrific. I'm, this is speculation. I can't prove this in any way. Uh, to make them look like boys and sacrifice the girl rather than the boy because the boy was so important to the family because he was going to grow up and help support that family. Same thing went on in China when they had the one-child contract is that uh, if they found out that they were going to have a girl, they would abort that because they only get one child and so they wanted it to be a boy. And so lots of boys... Uh, lots of girl children were aborted so that they could have that one child and meet the one child contract with the Chinese state. Now they're finding out, and I've t- talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, that there are millions, possibly millions, of girls in China that are unregistered. <laughs> they're unregistered children in China. They're not registered to the state because they didn't want the state to know that they were born. They had them secretly. And because to save them. And of course, we have many stories go back in the Targum uh, at the time of Abraham. Supposedly, the Nimrod was having boy children put to death because there was a prophecy that one of those boys would lead to setting the people free. And uh, so they tried to. And, and there's a whole story about Abraham being hidden in a cave and all this kind of stuff or hidden away so that he would not have been registered, etc. And uh, we know that uh, Terah had several sons. And one of those sons, Haran, died. And uh, actually, if you look at the Hebrew, it looks like he was put to death. And you can go back and look at all the statutes, why people were put to death in those days. And uh, he could have been put to death because he helped somebody. You know, like he helped a slave escape. Maybe there was an underground railroad. (laughs) I had a grandfather who was a part of the underground railroad. Uh, back uh, east. Actually, I've seen pictures of him and uh, he was excommunicated from the uh, Quaker church and joined the Schism Quakers because he was helping slaves escape in the Underground Railroad. But when you look at a, a photograph of him, he almost, and, and it's not a very clear photograph, it's a pretty old photograph, definitely looks like he has Negroid features. So, you know, I kind of wondered, was he? Of darker complexion, you know, I'm I'm very light complected, blue eyes and blonde hair, but uh, very big man, 
and uh, but he was a Quaker. Uh, but it could have been from, uh, you know, we we were Quakers here in America long before the Civil War. Uh, we, his father, and his grandfather, and I believe even his grandfather before that were all here in America. We were here early on, long before the United States. As a matter of fact, one of uh, my grandfathers, uh, one of his grandfathers, was kicked out of the Quaker Church before that because he joined the Virginia Regiment. So you have, and, but he was married, either he or his father, I have to go back and look at all this. Somebody else did the research. <laughs> was married to a woman who we believe was an Indian. So we may have all kinds of bloodlines in there. Of course, you're getting back generations and generations. So it's, you go back far enough, if you cut your finger, you're not related to them anymore, theoretically. <laughs> but you are, because the DNA is still there. But it isn't DNA that makes you an Israelite. It's, if God is prevailing in your heart and in your mind. And if God is not prevailing, what is prevailing? Are you over in the Moloch area, in the pagan area of understanding? And of course, a lot of people, they, they discover that Christmas has, and Easter have pagan origins because they were part of these other religions, extra-Christian religions. And so they think, oh, well, we don't celebrate Christmas. And uh, we don't celebrate Easter and, you know, in Messianic Jews do this and everything because of the fact that they're separating themselves out based upon these physical traditions. And uh, and when I was talking about Moloch and these 30,000 children, and that's just in Carthage, and that's what they've been able to supposedly unearth, what about all the other places? Because Moloch didn't start in Carthage. <laughs> Moloch is over there in the Assyrian history of mankind, uh, going all the way back to Nimrod and, and those areas. This idea of sacrificing your son uh, was going around, especially your firstborn was going around. And clearly Abraham thought God wanted him to sacrifice his son. And he was listening to God, what he thought was God. And... Uh, he went to do this. And this was, was that really God or was God allowing him to think that, testing his heart, but seeing his heart intervened and said, oh, no, don't, don't kill him. Don't kill your son. And, uh, did, was he, uh, was his mind infested with these ideas of Moloch and everything of sacrificing your son and then you would, especially your firstborn, and then you would be more prosperous. You'd have more children and you would have because you gave to Moloch. And what is really going on there? What What is the spiritual reality? You know, because one seems it's right out of hell and the other one not. We'll talk about that when we come back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're we're kind of laying a little bit of groundwork. We're, we're going to actually go deep into your mind and how your mind works, and to find out if you're making room for God to write His laws upon your heart and upon your mind. And uh, 
you know, the, the mind, the word for mind sometimes, there, I mean, there's interchangeable words both in the Old Testament and New Testament where the word mind and soul are, are, um, translated the same way. Yeah, you know, or diff, you know, sometimes mind, sometimes soul. So there seems to be a relationship. You know, there's other words, spirit, and there's multiple words, and we have a study up on that, but we're not going to go into that. So you want God to write His laws upon your heart and upon your soul, and not just your mental mind, your actual soul itself. There was a minister experimenting with uh, a way of doing podcasts. And he shared it with us. He just did a short one. And uh, it was uh, uh, Verdant Reflections, he called it. And he talks about thoughts determine our actions. And when he said that, uh, you know, that's true. What we think is often the way we go. We do things the way we think. Although Paul has a big long sermon, uh, or at least um, epistle, where he's talking about, you know, that he doesn't always do what he wants to do. So he's thinking, I want to do this, but I do this instead. And why is that? Because now his thoughts are that he wants to do this, but there's something in his thoughts that makes him do this other thing. He does contrary to what he wants to do. And we, we have that conflict. And these are conflicts in the mind. And that's what we're going to take a look at first uh, in our our in this study that is going to talk about depression and existentialism and your salvation from the depression that often comes, as well as your salvation from being influenced by what other people think. You know, the thought police, the 1984 kind of approach to uh, controlling you. How do you become so you're not controlled by that, but are free souls under God where God writes upon your heart and upon your mind? Because... Thoughts may determine your actions, but what determines your thoughts? Uh, is that where, do, do you think up your thoughts? Where do your thoughts come from? And then, what are good thoughts? How do you know how to reject what is not a good thought? How do you seek even what is good? How do you know this is good when you see it? How do you know uh what is really good when we find it is and, and and imagine it to be good. Because there's a lot of people who think they're doing... And those people who were sacrificing those children to Moloch, they thought they were doing good. They were thought they were doing what God wanted them to do. They didn't think they were defying God. They thought they were defying God if they didn't do that. But that was because their thinking was screwed up. Because something else, another spirit, was in their mind. And, and, and producing thoughts in their mind. We just had this shooter who went out thinking that uh, he was going to uh, become, you know, a famous schoolyard shooter. He actually boasted about that. And they knew about it. The FBI was warned that he, he knew about it. All the kids knew that he was crazy. He'd been kicked out of school more than once. More than one school. The cops came by his house dozens and dozens of times because of violence and uh, uh, abuse. Uh, evidently, him uh, abusing. We also know that he was on psychotropic drugs that were prescribed because of his mental and emotional state. They're going to fix what he thinks by drugs 
that have listed on their side effects suicidal <laughs> and uh, uh, violent thoughts. This is, these are side effects that come with those drugs. So they're giving them to a boy while they're still giving him access to weaponry. Uh, they sh- 99% of the t- I, I would say 100%, but I'm, I, I'm never going to be complete uh, in this because I don't know every circumstance. So I'll, I'll leave some sort of out. The taking of these psychotropic drugs is a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It doesn't mean that not taking them will produce good because you should be doing something else. But what should you be doing? A lot of uh, this uh, confusion in the mind, this dysphoria in the mind, these uh, delusions in the mind come from the fact that uh, we, we, our purpose in life we're not plugged in to the Holy Spirit that giveth life. And you can go all the way back to the original Genesis. There was the tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And the tree of knowledge, if you eat of it, you can decide good and evil for yourself in your own thoughts, in your own mind. You can decide what is good. But if you eat of the tree of life, you evidently don't need to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you will walk with God and you will know what is good and evil. Now, how do we know what tree you're eating from? Well, according to James, by what you do. And so how do you know whether you're doing good or not? Well, by what you do. So if we go back to the beginning of this program. What were we saying the early church was doing? They were taking care of all the social welfare needs, the daily bread, rightly dividing the bread from house to house, no longer able to take the welfare of the temple that was built by Herod, although the apostles were working daily in the temple. They weren't doing it the way Herod did it. They weren't doing it with forced offerings. They were Because forced offerings makes the word of God to none effect. They were now doing it through charitable offerings, offerings of love, love offerings. They were taking care of the needy of society, rightly divided. The church was rightly dividing the bread from house to house so that even though everybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ were kicked out of the welfare system of the Pharisees, they still were being taken care of. And if you go to Mark 7.11, it says, But ye say... If a man shall say to his father and mother, it is Corbin, that is okay to say a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. Free from what? To do no more aught for his parents. He does not take care of his parents because the temple will take care of his parents because you have given, you paid your Corbin, your sacrifice, that's what the word Corbin means, into the temple. And where is that money in the temple? It's in the treasury. If you go back to Matthew 27, 6, and the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And that word treasury is the same word Corbin. It's not, it's not written sacrifice, which is actually what it means. It is uh, written treasury there. It's not written Corbin, which we see over there in Mark seven eleven. 
which actually means sacrifice. But so what? So what should it have said there? Put them into the sacrifice because it is the price of blood. So we can't put it into the Corban because it's the price of blood. What is the Corban? If you went to the early church, they had a box called the Corbanos. And that was the money for the poor. That's what the sacrifice, that's what Corban was for. From the beginning, that was your sacrifice to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society. Family should take care of most of these things. You should take care of your parents. Uh, you know, if your parents are over 65 or can't work or whatever, you should be taking care of your parents. And if uh, you don't have enough, you, you know, then you go to church, uh, which you are supposedly tithing to on a regular basis. And the church does that. But the chances are the church has eaten up all that money and they're in debt because they borrowed against the future because they're not really, you know, I wonder how many Seventh-day Adventist churches are in debt. They're all Sabbath keepers, right? All these Sabbath keeper churches, they're in debt. You cannot be a Sabbath keeper and be in debt. So anyway, that's, that's the, that's the way of early Christianity was to take care of the needy through the korbanos, the korban, the treasury of the church. And that's what was the problem with the korban of the Pharisees was it was forced offerings. The parents and, and the blind man's parents were afraid that if we profess Jesus, will be kicked out of this social welfare system. This man was grown up. I assume that his parents were probably in their 50s or 60s. And uh, they didn't want to lose their social security. So they weren't going to profess Christ because they'd be kicked out. But everybody at Pentecost who got the baptism at Pentecost, they were kicked out. But it was okay because they had another system in place right away that actually was functioning in the temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. So you get the picture. That Christianity was practicing pure religion, which is taking care of the needy of your society, unspotted by the world. And the word world there is cosmos. And we just had a study on cosmos. We've had many studies on it. We translate that word cosmos into world most of the time. It's not the only word you see translated in the world. But it specifically had to do with courts and organized systems of men that had their own courts. Which is probably why Haran was put to death and caused Terah to gather his family and leave Ur and go and create a new city-state called Haran. Abraham, through faith, thinking some of the same things that he was taught about sacrificing your son to Moloch, was going to sacrifice Isaac. To, you know, because that's what he was taught that God wanted. And he was thinking that God wanted him to do this. And he was trying to figure this out. But he was willing to do what God wanted. But something in his heart allowed God to stay his hand. The God of life said, no, this is what I want you to do. I know you're doing this because you have a genuine desire to do what is right. But that's not what I want you really to do. And there's actually a place in the Bible uh, where it in the Old Testament where it says that God has never wanted you to sacrifice your children. Never did. And it was never in his heart or in his mind. So if that's true, then 
I don't think it was the God. It was a God, but not the God who wanted Abraham to do this. But he saw Abraham was willing to do what he, deep in his heart, he didn't want to do. But there were other things that Abraham was willing to do before that. Because Abraham was going to be the king of Haran. He was the one who was going to heir, be heir to the throne of his father. But he didn't, he didn't, he, he says it's not that we were in Ur, and now that we're in Haran, that we're in these systems at all, these cities at all. We need to get out of these cities and do something different than the way that the cities do them. And so he was struggling with this, and God was starting to write on his heart and his mind. This, the God of the Old Testament is the God of grace. Actually, if you go back to the Hebrew, you'll find that, you know, the, the word that we see translated into grace in the New Testament, the Greek word, is actually the word charis. Well, what English word do we get from the Greek word charis? Charity. <laughs> Which the word we see translated charity in the uh, New Testament is the word we also see translated love. So, yeah, the Old Testament God was the God of love. That's why Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, we're saying these things now. I'm talking about these things because we're going to bring it together. Because we talked in a program we're going to release. It's actually somewhat released within the network. I haven't released it, generally speaking. But I just did it the other day on a blog talk, a half-hour show, telling you what the keys of the kingdom is. Because Jesus tells you. We're not going to go into it now, but you just got to go back to that recording. It'll be a part of this series. And so that we're going to show you how to eventually to prepare your mind and your heart so that God will write upon your mind and your heart. And you can start eating of the tree of life, that will, which was God walking with you, which will turn everything around you into a garden of paradise. Instead of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding for yourself what is good and what is evil with your own fleshly mind, which might be called existentialism. Because today, people are in an existential crisis. They have an existential attitude, and we'll talk about these terms. And uh, that's what you're seeing when you see this boy go out and kill these students in the school. And this has been going on for a long time. Now, there are a lot of factors in this that bring this about. One of the major factors, almost everybody, they had, you know, it's not just people go out with guns. It was a kid who took two kitchen knives out of his house, ran through the school in Pennsylvania, stabbed over 20 people, killed somebody, severely wounded others. They're still suffering from those wounds to this day. And uh, their lifespan was certainly shortened by that. And, and some of these people he stabbed were adults. But, and they were just kitchen knives. They weren't a samurai or something. He, he, he ran through and stabbed all these people really quick. And then people say, well, the problem is the guns. Well, what did that boy have in common with a boy who went shooting up people in, in Florida? What did that boy in Florida have in common with the young man who climbed up in a tower in Texas back in 1966 
and started shooting people with a hunting rifle. I think he killed like 17 people or something. And he actually started killing. He killed his wife and he killed his mother and he did that with a knife. But when he got up into the tower, he was killing people out there, just shooting people randomly from this tower in Texas. And he was getting away with it until other Texans had their own rifles and began to shoot back and keep him pinned down so that people could climb all the way up into the tower. Cops climb all the way up in the tower. I think it was a Mexican-American who climbed all the way up into the tower. The officer, I was trying to remember what his name is. I can't remember. I apologize. I'm bad at names. I happen to remember this story because I was alive when this was happening. I was I was hearing it in the news, so to speak, back in 1966. But anyway, he got up there and eventually had a shootout with a guy and, and stopped him. But he was able to do that because people were keeping him pinned down. Well, what did he have in common with the boy in Florida? Well, they were both taking these same psychotropic drugs. They were both, uh, and, and he was just popping them like, he says, like popcorn. And it was keeping him awake. And then he would take other pills to put him to sleep. And so he was just doing this on a regular basis. He was prescribed by doctors. He had been to five different doctors, probably getting prescriptions from each doctor. And uh, possibly also getting illegally getting some of the same drugs because he couldn't get enough. Because like he says, oh, they won't hurt you. And they were driving him mad. And he didn't realize it. His brain was having all these ideas. He loved his wife. He loved his mother. But he killed him. And then he went out, climbed up into the tower, and started killing people. And uh, given enough time, he would have killed himself. Because that's the pattern that follows. And what stopped him was other people with guns. The same thing with the guy who shot up the church. Same thing with all these, almost all these attacks is there's a drug-related issue in there where they're getting prescribed Drugs that are messing with their minds. And we're going to talk about some of those things. But that's still not the problem. Because some people are taking those drugs and they're not affected in that way. Now, part of that is individual chemistry. And uh, part of that is uh, the soul. What's going on in that person. I know people that have been taking those drugs and they they end up having suicidal thoughts. I know somebody who was driving their kids to the school bus in the morning and felt like they should just drive the car right into a tree. Unfortunately, out here, there are no trees. <laughs> so there wasn't any tree to drive it into. But they actually were having these thoughts and unfortunately, they didn't do it. But they had them when they were on these drugs. And of course, coming off the drug is as dangerous or more dangerous than even being on it. Now, there is a way to come off the drug, and there are things that people do to come off the drug. And there's, and I tell you, what we're going to talk about is the way of Christ that will help you get off such drugs. Uh, but uh, actually, I just shared a, a story uh, on the Facebook uh, uh, where there is a commonly found natural, organic, non-prescription substance that comes from coffee trees that helps people get off these methamphetamine drugs because that's a process. You have to do it carefully because of the fact that you can have these suicidal thoughts. I've known people who are on these drugs and were coming off of them and they would just lay on their bed and whimper. They've they've since, you know, uh, corrected those chemical imbalances and uh, now are not plagued by that anymore and have a somewhat reasonable life. 
but we're certainly damaged by those drugs prescribed by doctors. Now, people think, oh, it's horrible. You're telling people not to take their medication prescribed by doctors. I'm telling people to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and figure out what's going on. But I'm telling you, you cannot decide good and evil with your mind alone, which takes us back to this idea of existentialism, which is people thinking they can decide for themselves what is good and evil. That's that's kind of what it's become. The word existential actually means concerned with existence, especially human existence as viewed in the theories of existential, existentialism. And so now if we look up a definition of existentialism is a philosophical theory uh, or approach, not just a theory, but an approach that emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of the will. Which I would assume, it doesn't say their will, it just says the will. (laughs) Which I think is interesting. What is eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Isn't that kind of existentialism? (laughs) You're going to decide what is good and evil. As a free agent, a free and personally responsible agent, you're not going to depend upon God and the realm of God, the heaven, heavenly realms, the tree of life, which God has given you, this connection to the heavenly realms. Listen, this dispelled our theories on heaven and hell that are often the product of what other people have told us. And just assume that heaven is a extra dimensional place other than where you're at right now, uh, that God, good, life, uh, the Holy Spirit all come from. Jesus Christ, are all they all dwell in this place in uh, heaven, this extra, extra dimensional place. We call it heaven. Which, of course, if you go look at our, or listen to our podcast on quantum and heaven and, and all that stuff, you realize that there's actually scientific evidence that such a heaven exists. I'm not trying to draw you a picture of what it looks like there, but there's a certain spirit that comes out of there, a certain frequency. I was talking to a preacher who's been going all over the United States just yesterday, and he was he was realizing something that I knew when I knew him. He used to be part of what we do here. He keeps calling back and touching base, and he says, we will be together again. <laughs> but anyway, he's, he's seeing something about himself, which... I'll probably share when we come back because it may take more than a couple of words. But we'll share that in the next program, which is very important that we all have to realize. So we'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about uh, existentialism. We're talking about uh, paganism. We're talking about sacrificing your children to Moloch, where you shrivel up a child and he drops into the fire. And of course, the prediction is if you don't go the ways of God, you're going to end up going the ways of Moloch. And even though paganism is a fourth century term, we would count 
that idea of Moloch as part of paganism. And it isn't the holiday. It isn't Christmas. It isn't Easter. It isn't, it isn't these external things, but it has to do with the heart. Is God writing upon your heart and upon your mind? Or is another spirit from, from another realm, a pattern from another realm, a dog-eat-dog realm, a devour-one-another realm, taking a bite out of one another realm, this hell realm. Is that really where, where our mind is being influenced from, being written upon our heart and our mind? And of course, we can tell by your works. By what you do. That gives us a hint. What, what is there? Millions upon millions of children are being killed every day. You know, the, I should have looked it up. I was trying to remember the word, uh, the Hebrew word. It starts with a, a tav, I think. But, uh, uh, it's a, it's actually a word that uh, has to do with, it means drums. And they used to supposedly pay, play these drums while they were putting these children on the hands of Moloch. And uh, so that you don't hear the screams of the child because he immediately begins to scream because of the burning and then he falls down and he dies and is consumed in the flame. Now, that's that's a pretty graphic image to, to put in your mind. You don't have to get that graphic to be of that spirit. You know, Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, but he predicts that because of what the choices of the, of the people are that day. And where is that choice made? Is it made up here in the intellect? Or is it made down in the heart? and the mind? And then the mind, the thoughts in the intellect, are a product of that choice. And so, we, we're, we're aborting children. You don't hear them scream. We, you can go listen to uh, people saying that the, the, the child is cringing away and trying to escape the abortion uh, uh individuals instruments and everything and it is experiencing pain and we know all that and this is being done to the tune of millions of children even after a child is born if he survives uh, his time in the womb and comes to uh, being born we remove that child at an early age from the home put him into daycares put him into because the wife isn't working at home anymore she's now out there working for the state uh, she thinks she's working for herself, but a portion of everything she earns goes to the state. And some she has to turn her children over to other people to raise them and put their spirit into that child. And, of course, one of the spirits that they put into the child is it's okay to take away from your neighbor to provide care for your child. Because provi- providing care and education and health uh, care for your child is a good thing. So it's okay to take away from your neighbor in order to get that accomplished. In other words, it's okay to take a bite out of your neighbor in order to provide for your child. That's not pure religion. Pure religion is unspotted by the cosmos, the world, the system, the constitutional. This is the definition in the Strong's Concordance for that world that your religion is not to be spotted by. And religion being the taking care of the needy of your society. Pure religion being doing that unspotted by that world, that word world means constitutional order or system of government. That's what the concordance says that that word means. And of course, we showed in our study on cosmos that it actually does mean that. Just heard that a child was taken from its parents 
because the child wanted to receive hormone therapy because they it's a boy who thinks he's a girl, I guess. It's usually the way it goes. Uh, and uh, he wanted to receive, and they would not give it to him. So that's depriving him of medical treatment. And so the courts took the child away from the parents. Why? Because the courts are the cosmos. That's the world. The, the, they don't have any choice in it because those children are all registered. And, you know, like the one-child contract thing, you can have more than one child, but you got to register them all <laughs> over here. And they they are deciding that it is good that the child takes hormone therapy and the boy becomes a girl. And, and you have people getting praised for, you know, taking a you know, seven-year-old and and allowing them to, you know, they're actually to the point of mutilating children and making boys into girls. You know, that's the extreme. It's very clear that a, a boy doesn't. Uh, there are evidence that a boy knows that he's a boy early on, and there are things that you can track. But he's not a man yet. He hasn't gone through puberty. He's not going to have the same. Not only if you survive the womb, and abortions that are taking place, you still have to survive out in the world, mentally and physically. And there, there, you know, there's a war on boys now. There's really a war on girls as well, but there's a war on boys. And uh, they're not letting boys be boys, and they're and they're lobotomizing them with Ritalin and uh, all kinds of other methamphetamines. You can go through a whole long list of them: uh, Adderall, etc. They're lobotomizing them, which is not much different than the hormone therapy because you're actually dealing with hormones with these drugs. There's a whole layer of hormones, and we'll probably get into some of that so that you can understand because those hormones are controlling your mind. What is what is controlling those hormones? And we'll get into some of those terms later, and we'll talk about hydras and... <laughs> And monsters and the matrix and all these kinds of things. But we probably won't get the, all of those today. But what we're, we did start talking about. Oh, let me finish with the minister. The minister, he was with us and he was having, he has a tremendous anxiety problem and, uh, he has a temper. He, he never really lost his temper with me or threw a fit with me, but I've seen it in him and he deals with depression at times. And But he's making a revelation and he brought it up in the call. He calls me once in a while. And he brought it up in the call and uh, that he realized that there was a spirit in him of, what, what should we call it? I was trying to think of the term that he used, but uh, of lording it over other people, thinking that he was better because he saw things they didn't see. And uh, this is this is what, all these people are doing, this is why there are 40,000 denominations of Christianity. There's only one Christianity, and there's only one denominator of Christianity, and that's Christ. There's a lot of people who think they're following Christ, and we're in the business often of showing you, that ain't Christ you're following. That's Moloch. That's the spirit of Moloch. That's not the spirit of Christ. Uh, that's the spirit of Nimrod that you're following. You know, Nimrod was going to make the people great again. <laughs> And, and I'm not picking any particular president or anybody like that because I, I'm t- trying to talk about spiritual things, characteristics. Are you setting your neighbor free? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Because these are part of the keys to the kingdom. 
Are you setting your neighbor free from your desires or ambitions? Because that's what you're seeing. These, so we're, go back to that minister. He was beginning to see that he was doing this. This is what all these, you know, my religion is better than your religion kind of thing. Because I see things that your religion doesn't see. And so you're lording it over other people. Uh, that you're thinking you're better than other people. That you're actually condemning and judging other people because they don't see what you see. That is a very dangerous spiritual malaise that you're drugging your spirit so you're not going to see the truth once you start doing that. You're not, you have no place for God in there if you're going to play God and think you're better than somebody else. That's, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, not judge your neighbor as yourself. Judge not, lest ye be judged. First, first rule, write that down. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And that's what you're doing. That's the spirit of judgment to think that your religion is better than their religion. I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Jehovah Witness. I'm a Baptist. I'm a, uh, this synod or that synod Christian. And those other guys are not. That is the spirit of judgment. And you cannot have that and receive the Holy Spirit. You're driving the Holy Spirit out when you do that. It's a, a, a position of pride. You want the position of humility. So that being said, he was beginning to realize that there's still a working process. <laughs> As there is with all of us. So anyway, this, uh, now because I had to go finish that thought, I forgot where I was going with the other, but, uh, we'll get there because it's all, it'll come around again because this is all circular. It's not circular logic, but it's, there's a pattern. The earth is spinning. <laughs> so we're going to come back to that again. This existentialism, this, uh, philosophical theory or approach that emphasizes the existence of the individual person as a free and responsible agent determining their own development through acts of will. That's existentialism. Well, individual person as free and responsible agent, I think that sounds really good. But how is that meant in existentialism? And this is really one of those dividing places. Because if you think it's one thing, you're headed towards hell, that realm. And you're going to receive the spirit of that realm into your being. If you think it means another thing, you're headed towards heaven. And the spirit of heaven is going to enter into you and dwell in you. So how do we distinguish that difference? Because they don't in, no, don't clearly in this description. Because an individual person is a free and responsible agent, but free of what? <laughs> so this is the definition. Free of God. Free of the Spirit of Heaven. If you cut yourself off from Heaven, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be driven out of the garden and you will be a free agent, but you're outside the garden and you're not walking with God. And you're going to need to create a denomination, a religion to justify you. You're going to need to create philosophies to justify you. You're going to have to have something to give you a meaning and purpose in your life because you're not plugged into the tree of life. You're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. You've been driven away from the Holy Spirit. Because you didn't want to listen to the Holy Spirit. You wanted to decide for yourself. That's the blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So I said that, you know, the last week was kind of a pivotal point. 
We did a show, several shows on blaspheming the Holy Spirit, on blaspheming and what it is. Rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting His guidance, refusing to eat of the tree of life because you're over there chomping down in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is separating you out from the Holy Spirit. It is keeping you away. So, if you're opening up that Bible and going through and you're going to figure it out with your independent, free, responsible agent knowledge, you're cutting yourself off from the Holy Spirit. When you sit down and say, I can't figure it out, God, you're going to have to show me. And you actually mean that. Don't just say that. Then the Holy Spirit can enter in and you can have revelation and you can understand what Christ is saying. Then when you open up the Bible, He is your guide. He is walking with you. His Spirit is dwelling in you. So existentialism where you're not free from the tree of life, free from the Holy Spirit, free from God, you can become that free, responsible agent within the realm of the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. But if you're going to eat of the tree of knowledge, you yourself are the act of your own will. You can see that was that last part, the development through acts of the will. What will? Then say his will, the will. The the law of nature is considered divine will. And that's what you want. Not my will, but thine will. So there's the divider right there. The will. The will of who? You? Or the will of God? Well, if it's going to be the will of you, guess what? The world and the flesh and the devil are going to control your agency. It's going to control your thinking. And your thinking is going to control your actions. You're going to think that it's okay to take this drug. You're going to think it's okay to judge your neighbor. You're going to think it's okay not to forgive. Why? And this is what really we need to go to this right now. This boy goes in and shoots all these people. He says, and you, you get the bits and pieces, and this is not unique to him. This is all these people. Runs through the school in Pennsylvania stabbing. There's quite a few stabbings. A lot more than I realize. I can't remember the number. It's just amazing. They run through and they're stabbing all these people. Why did they pick up that knife? Why did they pick up that gun? What what did they feel when they picked up that gun? They felt power. They felt they, they lacked power. And now when they picked up the gun, they had power. Now, a young man, or I don't know how young he was, you know, there's a lot more men that I would call young men today than I would call before, because I'm a lot older now. So, if you're 50, you're a young man. (laughs) So, anyway, there was a young man, uh, I think he wasn't very old, uh, anyway, that he went to a mall up here in Oregon, and he came in with an AK-47, and he was going to shoot people. And he started, started that process of shooting people. And there happened to be another young man in there who was carrying a gun. He had a concealed gun permit. And that mall was a gun-free zone. You're not supposed to have any guns in that mall. And But he used to be a security guard in that mall. And uh, he forgot about it. That's what he says. He forgot about it. And he, he was carrying his concealed gun in there. And he was a perfectly normal person. I mean... And he he happened to be nearby when this guy opened up fire with his AK-47 or or 
I don't know what, what it was exactly. It was either AK-47 or AR-15 or something like that. I think it was AR-15. Similar guns, different manufacturers. And uh, this guy immediately took action. He pulled out his pistol, his concealed weapon, and he pointed at it. Now, the firepower in that gun is way beyond his ability to fight with his pistol. He points it at the guy. He has eye contact. He also sees line of target. He saw there were people still running and getting out of the way. There was They were in a store and there were people all around. You know, it's in a mall. and uh, But they had eye contact for a minute, for a second. And he held his fire. He took position behind a pillar so he had a little cover. But he held his fire because he didn't want to hit somebody else. But just seeing that there was somebody else with a gun caused this guy to stop shooting people. Why? He actually turned and he ran down a hallway. He ran to the end of the hallway and shot himself. And the only thing that took place, nobody shot at him. Nobody grabbed him. There wasn't a SWAT team coming in. It was just a guy with a pistol and his girlfriend. And uh, he pointed the pistol at him from a little distance away. And the guy suddenly is not no longer empowered to kill anybody. And he runs away and kills himself. Now, that's the pattern. Destroy others, take the life of others, and then destroy yourself. It's the Saul syndrome. Cause the death of thousands of people and then kill yourself. And uh, this is a pattern. That pattern did not come from heaven. That other extra terrestrial realm <laughs> we're, we're on terra firma so this is the realm that we live in this physical realm but there's this other realm we call heaven other realm we call hell and there's spirits that dwell in both and those spirits can enter into you and you can become like the spirits of heaven or like the spirits of hell these people going out and killing people taking the lives of other people they're coming from the spirit of hell and speaking of uh, uh, Nehemiah Gordon he, he was actually went down into the valley of hell where we get the name the valley of hell <laughs> it's actually the it's actual physical location it's a beautiful little spot from for the most part there's nice green grass and trees and everything down there and uh, but there was an area there where the, he had seen a ancient bone and he was going to go down and, and it was a child's bone and he was going to collect it i'm sure he had to get a permit to do this he was going to take it up and bury it on another mount which is uh, the uh, Mount of the Bible, the Mount of the Torah, uh, whatever. Uh, but he was going to bury it up on that mount because it was an ancient bone. And that's what they do is they bury those bones. And he, he tells a whole story about it. But when he came back to get the bone that was all encrusted there with uh, ancient moss and everything, it's not even a bone anymore. It's fossilized pretty much because it's like thousands of years old. There were dogs, like wild dogs there that were barking at him and threatening him. And they, they, they're the hounds of hell, so to speak. And uh, he went down and they weren't protecting the bone, but they were just in his way. And he just stood his ground and he went and he took the bone and supposedly went and buried it. So anyway, it's an interesting story. But he's trying to express this idea of, you know, being able to face with courage these spirits that dwell. And, you know, we we see that where Jesus talks about spirits coming drawing a spirit out of one person and casting them into pigs and the pigs do what they go kill themselves 
<laughs> they run over the cliff and kill themselves. Because that's the spirit that comes from there. It's a self-destructive spirit. It wants to destroy others, but it will also destroy itself. If it can't destroy others, it will destroy itself. So this is the spirit that was in that boy and it was allowed to function. It wasn't the gun that allowed it to function. He could have done it with a car. He could have done it with a homemade bomb. He could have done it with all kinds of things. But it's a spirit of destruction. It's becoming more and more common. What are the signs of this spirit? And what what is really going on? He felt like he had no power. And he felt like the gun gave him power. And it did. But as soon as somebody would come along and say, you ain't got no power here. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not your victim. Even if it was just a pistol, would have stopped him. As a matter of fact, if there was the danger of the presence of the pistol in that school, he would have been stopped before he even got there. He wouldn't have gone to that school. He would have found some other gun-free zone. Or he would have been skulking around a little bit more. Because if he faced somebody who had the power to stop him, his power is gone. Because he's a coward. And that's what he was saying about those hounds of hell. That he knew that dogs, the more the louder they bark, the more ferocious they sound, chances are the more frightened they are. And all he had to do is, is not be afraid. And stand his ground. And the guy would have to. uh, The dog would have to give way. Now there were heroic people. Who stood their ground in front of the people. Actually shielded uh, the children and everything. And they were killed. I'm telling you. If you had the spirit of God in you. And they tried to shoot you. Even if you did not have a gun. There's other. There's other weaponry. Available to those. Who are eating of the tree of life. You could have stopped that individual. you ha- But you have to have love in your heart for that individual. Not fear. Not judgment. That's why you got to go back to what we just said. See, I'm, we're circulating. We're, we're going to... You, you have to give up. Judge not. You cannot judge that boy. You cannot be afraid of that boy. Because that fear comes from judgment. You have to love that boy. With the the AR-15. And you can you could stop him. You could cause the spirit that's dwelling in him. That's bringing him to this demonic place of murder and mayhem. You could have stopped him. But you have to learn how to not be of judgment. And that's what that minister is. Finally, he's finally at least admitted that he has that judgment. And he, he he referred to it as a frequency, and you can do that, but it's also a spirit. He's re- realizing, he, and he was telling me like it was a secret that I didn't know. <laughs> I, I knew it all the time. I knew it when he came and wanted to be a minister with us. But he has to discover it himself. I'm not going to tell you all your problems. I will tell you some of them. I'm telling many of you now, you have a problem with judgment. Everybody listening has a problem with judgment. Because you're a human being. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's greater in some than others. But we all have that problem. It's, it's not, you know, it's not a secret. And, but he's starting to realize it. And it's, but it's probably in a lot of different areas. But he's starting to realize that. And, and he has to continue and go work that out. So if you don't 
judge the boy, if you're not angry with the boy, but you actually love the boy, you can bind that evil spirit that's controlling him and free him from that evil spirit. Even though he's still on drugs or coming off the drugs, which is probably the case. Just like the, the boy, who, a young man who climbed up into the tower. I mean, he was a man. He had a wife and everything. He climbed up into the tower. He was, there was a spirit driving him. The chemistry allowed that spirit control. And he would, had been popping those pills. Like popcorn, he says. Because they won't hurt you. They will. But it was that spirit that was dwelling in him. So, now, why am I bringing this up? Well, now you, you go look at all the people who want to get rid of the guns as if the gun's the problem. First thing, we know they're not identifying the problem. It's very clear that all these shooters and stabbers and murderers and mayhem people who go to gun-free zones and schools and kill people, almost every single one of them are clearly on the record under these methamphetamine drugs. And now it's not the only source because it's all dealing with hormones in your body and there's going to be other things that interfere with that. And some people have actually said, oh, well, he wasn't on the drug. He had just come off the drug. So it wasn't the drug. And that That's when they're most vulnerable. They're most dangerous because of withdrawal. Because it's the imbalance that causes the problem. And you're messing with things you don't understand. So now all the people that are against that, they're misidentifying the problem. But there's an imbalance in them. And we'll talk about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Because that is the real danger. All these people are the real danger. And we'll show you how to overcome them, too. So, well, welcome back. Uh, the, if you take the words existentialism and millennials and you look it up, you Google it, you'll find all kinds of articles about existentialism and millennials. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I diverge here just for a moment to, to bring that up. And there's one that appears in Forbes. Uh, that millennials are doomed to face an existential crisis that will, what, define them? destroyed them <laughs> uh, well i don't know you can go go read the article and you can find out what the, the, they're saying but you know the the people that i saw speaking concerning these guns and they they the the news media some people in the news media evidently cnn was grooming a number of young people from to go and speak uh, and challenge this idea of we need to remove these guns now there's like there's a million AR-15s out there. I think there's like 10 million AR-15s out there in the United States. One person with an AR-15 did this. Clearly, the major causative uh, factor in doing this was the psychotropic drugs that he had been on. And uh, because everybody else who does this, I mean... You go before 1966, you don't, people had guns, they took them to school, they had rifle ranges at the school, they, you know, it was a common thing. Kids were driving around, you know, in high school, 18, 17, uh, with rifles and guns in their car. And they weren't shooting up the school. Why weren't they? What's the difference? 
every single one of these shooters, uh, and if you can find one who's not, and stabbers, uh, I would be surprised. I haven't found one that's not, have been on these psychotropic drugs. That's the factor. So, it's not the guns that's the factor, because, you know, millions of people have those guns in their house, and they're not shooting up anybody. So the idea you're going to take all those guns away, what you're going to do is create that gun-free zone <laughs> worldwide, if you could even do it, which you can't. It's not going to happen. Which is where these guys are drawn to, because the reason they're picking up that gun is they need this sense of power. They don't feel like they have power over their life, and the gun gives them a feeling of power. But the gun in the hands of somebody else takes that away immediately. And all their boasting and barking, as the hounds of hell will do, eviscerates. It disappears. It's gone. And they can't do what they wanted to do. They just kill themselves. They don't all. Sometimes they just flee. There's been a few cases where the kid was fleeing and somebody, although the person who stopped them in the parking lot had a gun. Uh, but the reality is, is that uh, they, they come down off this high and... Uh, you know, maybe they're shocked by the blood that they see or what have you. And they they don't actually kill themselves. And then there's maybe hope for them. But the reality is the gun-free zone is going to draw them because they have power in the gun-free zone. In in um, Israel, they had a problem with terrorists coming in, wanting to have the sense of power. <laughs> and they're willing to actually blow themselves up or shoot up a school. That's where they were going, is going into the schools. They were going other places, but they would go into a school and shoot up a school and take hostages and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they said, you know, Moshe Dayan at the time says, arm the teachers. Most of all of them are in the military. They know how to use guns. And so they got teachers lining the kids out in school and they're carrying a rifle on their back or a pistol on their hip. And it stopped. It, it virtually stopped because the teachers were carrying guns. Well, guess what? Now, years later... I mean, it was a long time before there were any more of these incidents. There was somebody who went in, I think he was carrying two guns, went into a library because there's no teachers in the library. And so, therefore, they thought there was going to be no guns there in the library. And there's been a number of libraries shot up because a lot of libraries are gun-free. But in Israel, they're not necessarily gun-free zones. And one of the students had a concealed carry gun. And the guy came in blazing away and the student pulled out his gun and stopped it. No big death toll. Stopped by one of the students. But again, if you are eating of the tree of life, you can stop it without a gun. I'm not telling you not to have a gun. It's a great visual effect <laughs> to, to be able to pull out that gun. But you don't even have to shoot the guy a lot of times. But you need to be ready to do it. You need to be aware and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and be excuting love out of you towards that guy. Not touchy-feely love. Real love. God's love. Fire and brimstone love. Because that's what it will look like to him. Is fire and brimstone. It will it will put the fear of the Lord in him. But it's love. It's not judgment. And you don't really understand what I'm talking about, a lot of you. You don't you may have an inkling of it, but it's not pervasive in you. And that's what we're this series is which may go on for uh weeks or months, is going to try to lead you. This is the pivotal point. We have to get back to that spiritual kingdom. So that the physical kingdom may manifest itself. You do not bring about the physical kingdom 
by physical things, you know, like paperwork and, and ID and, and, uh, you know, what can I do? That's the, that's what spawned this is I got that question from quite a few different people. What can I do now? What do I do next? Now I'm telling you what to do. First thing, what, what, what was the first thing I told you to mark down? Stop judging others. And you'll be surprised on how much you do that. You don't think you do. Some of you don't think you do. But it's, it's where you do judge others that you have to see. Where you judge others, you have to see. Where you judge others, you have to see. <laughs> because it doesn't do any good for you to see that he is judging others. It only does you good when you see where you judge others and let go of that judgment. And so, what does that judgment look like? Well, one of the things it looks like is forgiveness. Because you can't, ju- you can't forgive somebody you're still judging. So anyway, so those little comments out of the way. So we're back to millennials are doomed to face this existential, uh, position. They're doomed to it. So what is that, how is that gonna manifest itself? Uh, this existential crisis. This, because, why? Because they have an existential attitude. And that attitude is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, do not expect Forbes to tell you what that, uh, what that is. Uh, what that, uh, why that is. Why there's this existential crisis that will define the rest of their lives. Well, it will define the rest of their lives unless, of course, they repent, think differently, and seek, go in a particular direction, which is the kingdom of God. So, what what is the power that they have now? What gives them power, This the millennials now? The, well, one thing, they think the world owes them a living. That's a common characteristic. So, they have to realize, oh, guess what? The world does not owe you a living. Guess what? You have to be responsible. And you have to have a moral criteria of that responsibility. And that moral criteria is either the moral criteria of hell or the moral criteria of heaven. These two different realms. These opposing realms that have a different spirit dwelling in them. And if you go according to the spirit of heaven, then the spirit of heaven will dwell in you and it will become a light unto you and help you tell what is good and what is evil. If you let the other spirit in you, it will make you think that it's good to control others, to take power over others. And now now that comes to a new generation, because the millennial generation, they're kind of old. They're, they're in their late 20s and 30s now. The generation we saw speaking at these uh, deals uh, concerning taking the guns away and ha- hating the NRA and shutting people up and shouting people down and... And all this stuff where they're very angry. They're very emotional. Why should my 10-year-old brother have to learn how to defend himself in this world? Because that's the way it is. Your 10-year-old brother's got to learn to walk. He's got to learn to talk. He's got to learn to become that free, independent agent. But the reality is, is nobody's telling the 10-year-olds to get a concealed weapon permit. They were saying the teachers ought to be able to bring a gun into the deal. For one thing, I don't even think you should be in public school, and I think you should get all your kids out of public school. But the reality is, is that many of them are there. 
and you've entrusted the minds of your children with these teachers, but you won't allow the teacher to protect their bodies <laughs> with a concealed weapon. And you don't have to arm every teacher. Because as soon as you say that teachers are allowed, if, you know, they get a gun permit, and you can put all these stipulations on. They get the gun permit, and they feel up to it, and they take some training, and they get the approval of the principal. You can put all those rules in those schools. Then suddenly... You don't know what teacher has a gun and what teacher doesn't have a gun. It's like that, you know, arm the pilots. You don't know what pilot's got a gun in that cockpit and which one doesn't have a gun in that cockpit. And suddenly you've added a factor where he may not feel quite so empowered by carrying a gun into a school. He's feeling empowered now because he knows it's a gun-free zone. And the California governor, Governor Brown, whose cousin is the governor in Oregon, both with the same spirit dwelling in them, uh, has passed a law, signed into law, that teachers cannot get armed. That gun-free zones kill children. (laughs) That's what's happening. It's not the motivating factor, but it is the, the condition that causes the death of children. So, who are these children who are speaking up? These call themselves the Z generation. And so I asked, asked my son who was explaining this to me last night. I said, so what does the Z stand for? And he says, probably zombie. <laughs> so anyway, mindless people who want to take a bite out of one another. This is the zombie generation coming up. And if they continue in this, and I don't believe all the children are this way. And, and I, as a matter of fact, I know they're not. But many of them are, and they're very outspoken, very loud. And if CNN gathers all the zombies together, they will have a a crowd that will shout down any voice of reason because they are determined to take a bite out of one another. They want to take 10 million AR-15s or guns away from people who didn't do any harm, actually like the fellow in Texas who came to the aid of the people who were being shot at the church and stopped the murderer from murdering anybody else and brought him down eventually. Because with what? An AR-15. He had that AR-15. He's not a threat. He's a threat to evil. But I'm going to take you to the real, you know, so every time you see these crazy people screaming and yelling and shouting people down, why? Because they want power over others. They want power over the president. They want power over their neighbor. They want power over the NRA. They want power over everybody. They want to make them do what they want them to do. And by this yelling and screaming and shouting, they are feeling empowered. They are feeding the same spirit that killed their friends and relatives in that school. And they're feeding it in their hearts and in their minds. And they don't know it. And it will control their actions for the rest of their lives, according to Forbes. Because we're not talking about millennials. We're talking about the Z generation now. Now, if they repent and turn around, think a different way, turn around and act upon that different way. Like the prodigal son suddenly thought, I was better off in my father's house. Even the servants were better off in my father's house than I am in the house of this pig farmer. And so... I need to go back to my father's house and be a servant in my father's house. Because he thought differently and acted upon that difference. His father ran out and met him and gave him, you know, I mean, he had been eating corn cobs before and, and killed the fatted cast and had a feast. 
That's what you need to do. So people say, what do I do next? That's what you do. Think differently. Act differently. And when you do that, you'll come face to face with the millennial in you, the Z generation in you, the lost generation in you, the confusion in you. And you will be on your way to the kingdom of God. More important, God will be running out to meet you halfway. Your father will be running out to meet you halfway. So, all these millennials, they're doomed to face this existential crisis. All these Z generations are are doomed to find it, too. So, you know, you see all these Z movies, Z worlds, zombie apocalypse type deals where these guys are all going around eating one another or biting, taking a bite out of one another. That is, that's supposed to be really scary. I see that (laughs) in the spirit happening right now. It's happening in your neighborhood near you. (laughs) And you need to arm yourself. But you need, you know, I always tease when we see these crazy things and these crazy people. I think we need more ammunition. But what I'm really saying is we need the ammunition of Christ. We need, because you're going to run out of the other ammunition. (laughs) You need that spiritual ammunition of repentance and righteousness. Because that is what, that's what will stop. We have all these movies and the special effects of guys, you know, fighting these crazy monsters and they just love to make these monster movies. The monsters all coming and you get to kill zombies in these movies because the zombies are already dead. But what you really want to do is kill them with love. Not the touchy-feeling love, but the love that Christ had that drives the demons back and sets men free. So your existential angst, uh, sometimes called existential dread, existential anxiety or anguish, is a term that is common to many of the existentialist thinkers, and it is generally held to be a negative feeling arising from the experience of human freedom and responsibility. But of course, we go back to that definition. Human freedom and responsibility as that free agent through acts of whose will? The will of God? The will of this other realm of heaven? The will of the Holy Spirit? Or the will of this other realm we call hell? This demonic realm of dog-eat-dog, bite-one-another, control one another, take away the freedoms. If you desire, which these people, these Z generation, wants to take away the right of other people to protect themselves, to have their religion, to have their ideas, to say these pronouns or those pronouns. You want to take away their rights. We see it in so many different ways. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about it all the time. And they refer to this... Uh, philosophy that's come down through progressivism that that is pervasive now on college campuses and therefore in the minds of children that they are being trained up in this other way of thinking that leads to destruction self-destruction destruction of others and self-destruction we 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 have to turn around ourselves we have to become the light 
and I saw Ben Shapiro talking about this, and he has he has a lot, he says that the churches and the synagogues have to start taking care of the social welfare, and and libertarians have to see that that's really what the church is all about, and that's what it's supposed to be doing, and of course that's what the early church was doing, but the church today doesn't do that. They you know they send some money to Africa or South America, but they don't take care of the social welfare in their society and their community. They have men who exercise authority do that. So they've gone completely away from the kingdom of God, the teachings of Jesus Christ. They have their doctrines, but they're not the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says it wasn't to be that way with Christians. But the modern Christian, it is that way. They go to the benefactors who exercise authority. They ask them, take more stuff away from my neighbor. Take stuff away from the next generation so that I can have benefits today. You know, that's what they're saying. And that's what they're teaching. And they call themselves Christians. And they are not. And they're going to face an existential crisis. Anxiety. Depression. Why would any Christian be depressed? We're going to talk about that. We're going to show you how to be free of depression. Free of anxiety. Free of this existential angst. And show you how you are actually subject to a lot more existentialism. The bad kind. But existentialists who think God is dead. They end up being crazy people. And they are teaching you and your children how to become crazy people. And you're selling your children to the Z generation. And so how how do you escape from that? How do you protect your children from that? You know, I could say take your kids out of school, but if your home is not waking up to the ways of Christ, if you're not gathering together with other families to take care of the needy of your society in pure religion, taking your kids out of school may not be the solution. Because you're not going to bring the Holy Spirit into the dwelling place of your own temple, your own. Remember, we started talking about Israel. Israel is a place where God prevails. And God is a loving God of forgiveness and grace and has always been from the Old Testament, according to uh, Nehemiah Gordon. That's what the words actually mean. And I think he's right. So, unless you, you're becoming like that God in righteousness, the righteousness of God, because that's what you're supposed to be seeking, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, you're supposed to be seeking a system that takes care of the needy of your society and pure religion through faith, hope, and charity. And the only way you can do that is to gather together in congregations of people, gatherings, companies of people that have that same spirit or at least trying to cultivate that spirit and that thinking in themselves because you're supposed to be seeking that kingdom, that's a group of people, and His righteousness, the righteousness of God. In other words, extending grace to others. You have no grace. If you're not extending grace to others, if you're judging others, you cut off grace. If you're separating one another, because he doesn't say this and they don't wear this and they don't do this and they don't do that, all external things. You want the Holy Spirit to separate out those who will not see the light. And in order to do that, you need to be the light in the room. You need to come into that room without judgment. Without pointing out everybody else's fault, but trying to see your own. You need to come together to actually put your love into practice. 
You have to lay down a portion of your life every day, every week, to and for the benefit of others. And then you are operating by the way of the kingdom. The denominator of the church is Christ. That is the only denomination. And so, if you're not doing what Christ said, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because you got wet. You're not a Christian because you had an altar call and you had an emotional experience. All those people out there will have emotional experiences. You're a Christian because you're letting God write upon your heart and your mind. In order to do that, you have to stop eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, deciding for yourself what is good and evil, and trying to find God. Now, you're hearing my voice speak about these things. My voice is flesh. But the one who has kept my flesh alive all these years is spirit. I don't want you turning in just to me. I want you to be turning into the Holy Spirit. Turning that dial to the Holy Spirit, which is a reference back to that half-hour blog talk, straight talk that we're, we're going to be hopefully doing more of. And we I, we can take callers on that now. and uh, But join the network. Jo- join us at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. Go to the network links. Join the networks. Join a congregation. And we will start taking you on this journey, seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness together. Till then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.